Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. MotoGP at Jerez in Andalusia is one of the MotoGP races a rider must win. It's almost as if the race should be worth a couple more points than the normal 25. It's in the sport's heart. It's full of tradition. In the sunshine yesterday was Simon Patterson. Valentin Harunshi was reporting on the weekend for the race and they joined me, Toby Moody, to talk about Jerez, a place that I first went to in 1996 when the passionate crowd were so excited about Spaniard Alex Crivier potentially winning the Grand Prix that they spilt onto the racetrack on the last lap, ultimately causing him to lose the race. But it gives you an idea of how passionate they are about motorcycle racing in that part of the world. But we're here to talk about 2022 and we're here to discuss Peko Banyaya being back on form. The Ducati rider, he set a pole record, he won the Grand Prix, he set a fastest lap record as well. He got the whole thing yesterday. Fabio Quattararo now has a championship lead from being level with Rins to seven points ahead of Aleix Espargaro. Is this going to be another season of Quattararo versus Banyaya, Yamaha versus Ducati? Suzuki and KTM, it wasn't a race really for the family album. And something that fascinates me, has Quattararo re-signed? I personally think he has, but we will discuss it. So then, let's kick it off with the winner, Pecco Bagnaia, the Italian. The fastest ever race pace over 25 laps at Jerez was set by Bagnaia yesterday. From a season's best so far of two fifth places, he's finally now got a win. Simon, is this the turning point? It very much looks like it, but we have seen false dawns before this season with Bagnaya, so I'm not getting too excited about it just yet. Um, it's it's don't get me wrong, it is by far the best performance he's given this year, and it does build on what looked like uh, some good form from last weekend in in Portimao, although that didn't quite translate into the race after he bashed himself up really badly in qualifying. But to come into this weekend's toe nursing an injury to deliver not just the the uh, race performance he delivered, but the qualifying performance, because this is a circuit where the top 15 have been separated by a second all weekend, and the guy went half a second quicker again. Um, I, it's not a track where you can do that. It's tight and it's twisty. So I think that, more than anything, uh, showed to me that he's got that front feeling that's been missing back again. Um, we need to see, of course, how it translates to other circuits. Uh, Le Mans will be a good test of that. And Mugello would be a good test of that after a disaster for Bagnaia last year where he crashed out of the lead at his home race. So I think if I were in the Ducati camp today, I would be very, very happy with that. But I, I maybe wouldn't quite be uh, counting all my chickens before they've hatched. Yeah, equally, I, I would not be jubilant 
quite yet if I was Ducati because it, it, I agree with Simon. It did feel like Banya's season threatened to get underway at several points, especially by what he was saying. But obviously, this was an entirely different level of performance. I think defeating a fully fit Quartararo at Jerez is maybe one or two steps removed from defeating Marquez at Cota or defeating Marquez at the Saxon ring. Because, I mean, you might disagree because there's less of a body of evidence, but those two were like 11 seconds up the road compared to everybody else. Clearly, in Normally, we would have expected Fabio to absolutely walk this race. And the fact that Pecco not only went, you know, toe-to-toe with him, but won and absolutely smashed the the absolute hell of the lap record. Uh, it says a lot. It says that he's rediscovered certainly at least that peak level. So, yeah, it really could be Quartaro versus Banyai again. 33 points is not... It's not an unassailable gap, certainly, at this point in the season. And it I did already sort of have a thought of, is this sort of Lorenzo Rossi 2015 again, where Lorenzo spotted Rossi a bunch of points in the beginning, but was quicker over the course of the season and ultimately made it up in controversial fashion? Maybe. We'll see. Uh, still, still such a long way to go. But this was as convincing and as informative of a win as, honestly, we've seen all season, I guess, yeah. Or uh, or ever, even from Banyaya. I mean, Simon, you know, you, you both said it. it. The domination was was quite something. And as you say, Val, to be 11 seconds up the road, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, so it really does set the pair of them apart. He, he, Banyaya did say after the race that he had stopped trying to change the bike to him and instead he has morphed himself into the bike. Now, if he has crested that hill, if he's made that big change, and it can transpose over to the Le Mans, the Mugellos, the Catalunias, the Assens that we've got coming up, then those 33 points are bridgeable with, what have we got, 15 Grand Prix still to go, 25 points per victory. So, um, And, of course, you touched on it as well, Simon, you know, still injured with that shoulder from Portugal. He took a lot of painkillers after the warm-up, so he was riding not 100%. I mean, I think he probably was riding 100% because he was so much pumped full of painkillers. But um, (laughs) that's a a separate issue. Um, There's a belief in some sports these days that if you need that many painkillers to ride, then you're not fit to ride in the first place and shouldn't be out there. But that's... That's not MotoGP policy right now, so let's not get too into it. Um, it is worth remembering, though, that, that Bagnaia's real title challenge last year didn't come until the second half of the season. And that has to be the most worrying factor for Quattararo right now. Uh, the guy won four out of the last six races, probably should won, have won five of them if it hadn't been for the pressure of fighting for a title that made him crash out in, in uh, Misano. So... Let's see how he can Wrong tar choice that day, to be fair to him. Yeah, but also a lot of pressure on his shoulders. And he has a history of falling off under pressure at Mizano, in fact. Um, So, yeah, I think that uh, the way that he spends the next few races will be very telling to us because the air tracks last year where he had a bit of a nightmare. Um, If he can come out of those fighting strong, then Quattararo has a real, real problem in his hands. Yeah. 33 over over 15 races is entirely possible to make up. But I, I do think Banya was actually, as much as his title challenge didn't really begin in earnest until the second half of the season, Banya was actually closer 
to the lead at this point last season. So it's, you know, it's just it's a question of whether this this Harris result is something that's very, very repeatable, the way that last year's run of nearly five wins in, in six races was. Uh, but again, if it is repeatable, then honestly, the points don't really even matter. Like if you can do this on a week in, week out basis, I think as good as Fabio has been this season, I think he's proven that the Yamaha will not let him do this kind of thing on a week in, week out basis. There will be tracks with straights long enough where it just can't do it. I mean, Fabio keeps maintaining that the race he rode in Cota to seventh was no different in terms of his performance level to his Portimao win or Harris second place. And if if he's correct, then there's there's going to be, and certainly he, he seems to anticipate trouble on the horizon. And if he's correct, there's going to be trouble on the horizon. There's going to be days where he has, he's going to have bad points days. Even though there's another crucial difference in that Banyaya falls off sometimes and Fabio basically never does. So there's, there's a few layers to this potential fight if it does materialize. But it's, it's, it's very fascinating, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, if we drift on to Quattararo, he, he has now scored 45 points from 50 in the last two Grand Prix. Uh, looking forward, just as we did last week, let's just repeat those stats. Le Mans last year, he was third. Now, the difference with Le Mans this year is that there's going to be a big crowd in. Simon, there wasn't a big crowd last year at Le Mans, if much at all, sort of... 20,000, help me out here. Small. We're just numbers. We're just numbers. I can't, off the top of my head, I can't tell you the exact number, but it was less than half capacity for a race that's normally one of the biggest of the year. But my point is, yes, there was a full crowd there in 2019, but he was a rookie and he was a bit under the radar. He's now... He was also just coming off an arm pump surgery. Yeah. He's now a French reigning world champion going to the French Grand Prix. So he's got something else to worry about when he goes to Le Mans. Uh, Catalonia, he won in 2020 and he was sixth last year when his leathers popped open. He was easily going to be on the podium otherwise. Assany won last year, Mugello won last year. So um, the, the, again, the Yamaha tracks coming up, the tracks coming up are going to suit the Yamaha, should I say. But Yamaha must be wary, as you've touched on, that Ducati made the step change in the second half of last year. What can Yamaha bring after the summer break? What have they got up their sleeve? That's maybe a question we need to chase up for next week by ringing around a couple of people. Um, we'll talk about that. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, Quattararo in the race said, I tried to overtake Banyaya in the early laps. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I was going to get worried that I was going to get stuck behind him because then the front tyre temperature would go up and then the pressure would go up and it would be like riding the front like a pee on a drum. It would be a bit pingy. But he also said that then the, the compound went over and it was like riding on plasticine. It was all a bit squishy. Um, but he did sensibly say, I know I have limits. You know, uh, I understood that the points were there. Don't be greedy. Take the 20 points. So that's that's the mindset of a champion still at 22 years old. I mean, he gave it a go. I, I think... If he properly settled for points, there was a moment where the pit board came out and it showed that the Yamaha team was telling him that next up the road, Miller was seven seconds down the road. And it sort of read like a message from Yamaha, like, hey, if you need to, the 20 points is yours. So don't don't go nuts. And I think he still he still he still gave it a proper go. I think he maybe had a couple more tenths, maybe one more tenth than Banyaya of, of ultimate pace. But is never gonna 
is never going to make a way, his way past Ducati with that with that sort of gap. And even then, I'm I'm honestly not sure because they were both absolutely riding out of their mind in in terms of relative pace to the other guys. Like, I think mean, this is just this is going to be slightly a mean comment, but the whole MotoGP field was was saying, "Oh, it's so close at Jerez! It's so close at Jerez! You never know who's going to win." Like, there's going to be 15 riders who can win, and we've had a race where. Somebody's on pole by half a second, and then there are two riders who absolutely blitz the hell out of the rest of the pack. It wasn't close at Jerez at all. There are two guys, and then there was the rest of the field. You know, MotoGP is—it's still like that sometimes. Still, for all the for all the level equality of the grid, we still have weekends like this where people just disappear into into the sunset. The the one thing that I think is quite telling maybe about why uh, why he couldn't get past is listening to the comments from Alessio Spagaro about the battle for third. Um, he basically said he was sitting behind Marquez and Miller waiting for one of them to make a mistake because he thought that was the only way it was possible to get past because Jerez is such a hard circuit to pass. And I think that's why maybe when you think back to the iconic Jerez overtakes, they're all big spectacular movements because they have to be you can't do a normal block pass at this track to get past you know that's why we've got uh Gibano versus Rossi in 2005 why we've got you know, do you remember the amazing Eugene Laverty overtake on uh on Marco Melandri and World Superbikes in, in 2013 at the last corner that was basically mirrored yesterday in Moto3 by Izan Guevara those sort of around the outside, those sort of moves are the big spectacular Hareth overtakes. And I think when you've got two guys who are so equal, but who, especially with the Yamaha behind, which, you know, it is a difficult bike to overtake on because it carries corner speed and doesn't break as hard. I think that, you know, I, I, I tweeted at the start of the race to say if Quadraro leads lap one, the race is over. Um, in the end, it was Bagnaya that led lap one and the race was over. But I think that could have went either way. It was very much something that was decided as the lights went out because of the nature of the circuit. Maybe if Bagnaya was P2, um, he would have been able to stick on and overtake in the slipstream. But similarly, maybe Quadraro would have been used the, the better corner speed to break away from them. But the two of them were so well matched that I think there was, yeah, that was just the nature of the race. Have Ducati said anything or Banyaya said anything about how he has morphed himself into the 22 bike? Everything that they've said has been that it's all been kind of working from both sides, that he hasn't had to make huge changes. Um, he's had to make big setup changes, but it's all been to try and get him a bike that feels roughly like one that he wants, roughly like last year's, just a little bit better here and there because it is a new bike and they have tweaked a few things. But I think they... I get the impression that they kind of went much further away in the opposite direction over testing and that really messed them up at the start of the year. So both parties have come back to what they're a bit more comfortable with now. So it's maybe particularly more... at a track where they tested at. Yeah, yeah. Well, they did and they didn't because um let's remember the, the engine spec has changed. True. Since they were here. And that was one of the big problems. The uh, the initial touch of the throttle and how aggressive it was was one of the big problems. So it, that test will have been beneficial, but not beneficial to the extent that other manufacturers will have been. Mm, interesting. Interesting. But uh, as Val said, he's 33 points back. He's Banyaya at the moment with those 15 Grand Prix to go. So, you know, that'll just fizzle away. It's two and a 
three points a race, isn't it? You know, two points a race, it's done. But uh, Banyaya has had a non-score, which was Portugal. Um, sorry, I'm talking rubbish. He fell off at the first race. He fell off at the first race in Qatar. Um, but as you quite rightly say, Val, Quateraro at the moment, commentator's curse approaching, scores, scores scores and even if it's a bad day it's still got a number in it and not a dash and not a zero uh which is how the championship table is uh is printed out by uh by the fim so mm, interesting times um ducati not out the woods yet yamaha not running away with it either we got a championship we've got now it distilled down and we've only just started europe normally we get to this kind of Ah, it's going to be between those two, and it's thick end of Saxon ring, middle of July, isn't it? I'm not sure it is just between those two, though. I genuinely think that there's an Aprilia threat. I think that Alicia Spagaro's, uh consistency at the minute means that he is a threat as well, because it seems like the new Aprilia just does not have a bad weekend. You know, they're just there every weekend now, consistently. Um, we've seen... Mir used a similar strategy in a complicated season to win a championship, 2020. And while I think this year will be a little bit tougher to run that strategy with, with Bagnaia and Quadraro both looking quite strong, um, there will be tracks where both of them, well, we've already seen that there's been tracks where Bagnaia struggled. I think we'll continue to see tracks where Yamaha will struggle again as well. I mean, no one's expecting them to win at the Red Bull ring, but and Aprilia fighting for the win at the Red Bull Ring this year would actually be, looking at the strengths of their bike, quite a reasonable proposition. So, um, yeah, I am very curious to see how the title fight plays out. I think we have our two contenders, but we, we don't have all the players in position yet. Yeah, I, I'm, like, I, I still find it a little bit hard to believe just in terms of peak performance. We did see Aleish walk away with it at Termas, but that was a, a bit of a weird weekend. Uh he could he could he could be in the mix. Yeah, I, I think if either Banya or Quartararo go go on a run of those really, really good weekends, which happen sometimes, he might be left in the dust. But if if the if shenanigans begin, then yeah, then maybe because the Aleish looks really good and the Aprilia looks very, very versatile. Like when when the big weakness of your bike is the clutch, as Aleish put it yesterday in the in the press conference, that means that you know the actual lapping part of it is is more or less sorted. Like obviously, it can still get a little bit better, but there's no there's nothing glaring there. And you know, it qualifies well, it races well. Um, you, you always looked like the third best guy in yesterday's race. I was always, even though. The passing is clearly very difficult. I was always reasonably confident that he was going to get past both Marquez and Miller. Ultimately, he took a, a dive bomb on Miller and Marquez nearly falling off the bike. But the pace, like once he was in the clear, as he says, he checked out from them immediately because he was the, the third best, the third quickest rider in that race. Even suggests he could have followed Quartararo Banyaya, which I I don't know. That, that sounds optimistic to me, but... It's a good day for for a bike that you know continues to impress with how how versatile and how reliably one of the quicker ones it is. And let's not forget that a few short years ago, um, whenever we were talking about 
uh, around, you know, we, we, Alesh said that he was waiting behind Jack and Mark, waiting for one of them to make a mistake so he could get through. A few years ago, it would 100% have been Alesh that you were sitting behind waiting for a mistake to get through on because he would have done something dumb. Um, so he's writing with a new new more sensible approach this year and you know they they said i did an interview before the first race with uh massimo Rivola, the team manager and massimo listed off five or six circuits where he thought that aprilia could win at this year uh, one of them wasn't argentina the only one of them we've been to so far is qatar so there's another there's another four rounds silverstone phillip island assen aragon where they think that they can win and if he can stay this consistent throughout the season, be top five at every round, stick in four or five victories, he is 100% a podium contender. And obviously, yeah, the, the, the one weakness that he singled out now is the clutch off the line. But uh, that's something that can be replaced in season. And I'd imagine that's something that they've got a big box of new parts to test today. Uh, I don't think you're being fair. I don't think Aleish would have fallen off a few years ago running in, in tow of somebody. I think the bike would have exploded. That too. That too. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, without having the rule book to hand, I think if you're going to test a load of clutches, you can go to an airfield down the road in Italy. All you got to do is standing starts and just run it up to 200 clicks. That's all you need. Yeah, because because... The rules doesn't limit the amount of test days you can do. The rules limit the amount of Michelin MotoGP tires you're allowed to test on. So that's something you can do with with uh, street tires at the end of the day. Something you could do in a di- it's something you could do in a dyno. Yeah, you haven't got the wind resistance, but I know what you mean, Simon. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but it's if it's if it's the the feel, if it's the mechanical feel that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, if, then it, it doesn't have to be done on a racetrack. And if it's wearing out or something that's not right, then you can do it on a dyno because all you got to do is wear it out, wear it out, wear it out, wear it exactly. out, and then and then work out. But if it's only off the start line, it's very odd that it's wrong between the start and the first corner which is only about five seconds um, that's the only time these guys are using a clutch don't forget uh correct yes exactly and it's the only time they touch the lever so yeah well let's uh let's see uh aprilia um well on the pro on the podium is the norm and they are dishing out a large amount of embarrassment to many other teams they are third in the constructors championship and remember that they only have two bikes and it's the first biking your brand over the line that scores the points so if you've got more bikes you've got more chance a la Ducati and Aprilia a second in the team teams championship out of 12 teams I mean it doesn't get talked about enough and I do talk about it on this podcast because I've been a member of a team and it's important for a team that you are up in those different championships rather than just the riders championship but the great thing is doesn't Argentina seem a long time ago when he won the race? We're like, yeah, he's on the podium. Yeah, fine. <laughs> How things change for Aprilia. And two front row starts since then as well. Correct. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best. And that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable 
and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mark Marquez at Hareth in 2022 said, Today I gave my maximum and I achieved the maximum. I saved my energy through the whole weekend to be ready for Sunday because I'm still not in the condition to do a whole weekend at 100%. He crossed the line in fourth position, a couple of seconds back of third place, Aleish Aspargaro. But of course, the highlight for so many people on social media, watching on TV, was him picking it up on his knee whilst passing Miller but ultimately then letting Alicia Spargaro go through at the last corner with half a dozen laps to go or so. He sounds reasonably sanguine and not happy, but that's it. I couldn't do any more. Is that the vibe you got? Well, he's, he's he actually he's sanguine because he has to be sanguine. The way he put it is, if I don't set myself realistic targets right now, I'm going to be frustrated. And that's no good for everybody, for, for anybody. So... If, you know, if if Mark was 2019 mode, Mark, obviously he'd be really frustrated with with fourth place at Jerez, but he's not that Mark right now. And we, we don't know that he'll ever be anymore. And the bike's different and he doesn't know it as well. He, he tricked me good this weekend because on Friday there was no pace. And I thought that I thought that everything was going wrong. I thought he was in, in real trouble. And even on Saturday, you know, he did haul himself up to the second row, but that required towing Jack Miller in FP3, towing Peko Bagnaia in the first run of Q2, towing Fabio Quartararo in the second run of Q2. And obviously on Friday, he towed, towed Aleix Espargo, which earned him a lot of criticism from Aleix, like like a lot, a lot. Very, very harsh words. But, you know, anyway, Mark never cares about that sort of thing. Doesn't bother him one bit. Uh, and he didn't care off the line, did he? Nah, never does. Uh, just... It's 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 amazing how unflappable Mark is to public criticism. Like he, he barely ever even like gets he never even betrays being annoyed a little bit. He's always just he gives off an like I'm above all of this attitude. He he just does not care. It's 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 very impressive. It's it's very, very cool in a way. But anyway, um so suddenly in the race he discovered he discovered some pace, 
that just didn't seem to be there for the rest of the weekend. And the way he puts it, it makes sense that he conserved his energy for the for the one session that matters. Um, he probably should have been down at that final quarter, honestly, and then it would have been a, a long score. So clearly he was he was pushing quite hard. Well done to keep it upright. And yeah, fourth was the the absolute best best result possible. Like if 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 he'd cleared the jack earlier, maybe he could have pulled away enough to to where Aleish couldn't have caught up. But I don't I don't really like Aleish just had more like a lot more, and Mark is still. He's still figuring out this new Honda. He he's smart about the way he talks about it. Like he's he makes it clear he's not annoyed in the least that they've changed the bike, even though he found the, the previous bike so much more natural. But you know, that just means that there are gonna be days like this where fourth is the the absolute best. Uh he's not in the title race, but you know, he's obviously gonna win a couple of races this season. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the thing, isn't it? Obviously, he is getting better, but when the absolute best that Mark Marquez can do is fourth after saving himself all weekend just for the race, we're a long way from 2019, Mark, still. Um, and honestly, the longer this goes on, the harder it looks that we're going to see 2019 Mark back. Um, I get that the shoulder's still recovering, but it's been six races and, and six months almost now that he's been back to training and it shouldn't take that long to build back the muscle that he's lost. Um, assuming that everything he's doing in the gym is, is concentrating on that, which makes me think that there is maybe just a weakness there that things aren't as strong or as good or as quick reacting or whatever way you want to put it as they used to be. Um, and that's, yeah, that's far from ideal for him. Um, he is adapting to the new bike still. That's very, very different. But the more the guys talk about it and the more that they have difficult weekends as opposed to easy weekends, the more it sounds like the new bike isn't massively different anymore. Um, so, yeah, it, it just I think there's a big question mark about what level of Mark Marquez we're going to see whenever the full pack, whenever he feels like he is now as strong as he can be again. It just it plays into a, like a, a pet theory of mine that's I'm increasingly sort of thinking about that might be complete rubbish, but just is modern MotoGP too both too specialized and ultimately too close to allow riders to to get injured and to take time off with injury and you know have surgeries and stuff like that, which they obviously sometimes you just have to do it because your body's broken. But we've now seen multiple riders over these past 12 months have, you know, have time off or have injuries that it takes them just an absurd amount of time to get back to their form from. Like, is Miguel Oliveira back to his Miguel Oliveira best since what happened at Red Bull Ring last year? Is Franco Morbidelli ever going to be back to, to the Morbidelli we know since his knee surgery? And is, is Mark Marquez ever going to recover from the time he spent off that let his shoulder, you know, wilt, I guess? Mm. It's because all, all of them have struggled to varying degrees. And I'm you could argue none of them are back to their best yet, even mm. though mm. even though the like those parts, the injuries to those parts haven't been career threatening in a sense. But whatever has happened has been enough to knock them off their rhythm and, and knock them maybe off their fitness schedule. I don't know. 
three completely different cases, obviously, but it's 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 taking all of them very very long. For for me, it's something different. Um, I think that it's because MotoGP is currently constantly adapting and changing that the the biggest problem is that you develop a way to ride a MotoGP bike and then the way that you ride a MotoGP bike changes underneath you. And that means that every rider has a life expectancy in terms of, of fighting for championships. And if you go back in time, it happened with Valentino Rossi. It happened with Mick Doon. It happened with all of these guys because... Basically, they're so long that you know you can you can write for it. And in Mark's case, it's made even worse because he left. And then let's not forget, we had this massive technical revolution of right head devices that are worth like almost half a second a lap. They completely change how you ride the MotoGP bike. Uh, Juan Mir was complaining yesterday that he thinks that maybe part of the problem that some teams are having at the minute comes from the Michelin tires because they've made such a big technical step that the tires haven't been able to keep up. And I think that that is the reason that maybe we're seeing, you know, Marquez fading away. Like he, he won't eight titles in nine years or 10 years, which is something that Valentino Rossi did. Then Valentino Rossi got hurt and came back and fought for titles again, but was never the same guy. And I think we're, we're seeing a repeat of history. Yeah. Um, if I could, if I could be so bold, because I was there at the time, uh, Mick didn't struggle with the bike. He just fell off behind the commentary box at Hareth, and that was it. Uh, but but, we get, but the, the point is that regardless of the reason, I completely get what you mean, but regardless of the reason, every great champion gets a run and then it's done. Yeah, that's It always has to end, and it generally ends quite sharp. Yeah, and Val has brought up a very valid point, actually, with those 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 three guys of mm, you've had your time and you've had your moment in the sun and all those other one-liners from sage comments and people and such like i'm, I'm not entirely sold val on your theory with regards to Oliveira because i think that ktm are in in a world of hurt that is making him look really bad but i yeah completely with the other two with morbidelli in particular yeah he's the he's the weakest link in in that regard because he's actually looks pretty good these past couple of weekends relative to Binder. But yeah, and, and the other name that's worth throwing in there as well is obviously Andrea Davizioso, who was a title contender, took a year off, came back and was nothing on the bike that won the championship last year. And it's just embarrassing now. It's awful. Yeah. It's it awful. Is. Uh, on a on a, a completely other side of the coin, um Marco Betzecchi, a rookie on one of the VR46 Ducatis. Uh, you guys gave him a score of 8.5 in the rider rankings on the race website. Qualified eighth, finished in ninth position. You're both fans, aren't you? I mean, you, uh, Simon gave him that ranking. I want to make that very clear. The numbers are <laughs> Simon's numbers. Please do not at me on Twitter about Simon's numbers. They are Simon's numbers at Simon. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I'm a fan. I, I would have, all that said, I would have also given him something like that. He was, he was really, really good. It's another really, really good weekend for Marco Vitecki, who looks the undisputed cream of the crop of this of this rookie class, which I did not see coming. I'm not sure how many people did, but it's just crazy the the strike rate of Valentino Rossi on these on these young Italians. Congratulations. Uh, I don't know what, what the long-term plan should be for him at Ducati, like whether like he has to be on a, on a work spec next year, right? Or at least something close to that, I guess. It was just 
uh, he's he's adapting so much better than all the other rookies, and he's like the only problem is that he's still crashing kind of a lot. Like I think he crashed during Q1, and I think there was a there was a moment where he set the fastest time in Q1, and then 30 seconds later he was down on the ground, which I described as the ultimate Marco Bezzecchi experience of of 2022. Uh, but you know, it's it's easier to make a fast rider stop crashing than a slow rider be fast. And Bezzecchi's he's fast. He's he's fast in MotoGP. He's gonna be he's gonna be a stud. Congratulations, Ducati. I guess having eight bikes works out. Yeah. the The only problem is that they have got the wrong rider in the factory bike at the minute because Luca Marini is disappointing again. Um, and I can't imagine a world in which, at the very minimum, those two aren't switched next year so that Marini keeps his 22 bike for 23 and Bezecchi gets a 23 bike instead of the 21 bike he's currently on. Um, I just can't imagine a world in which that's not going to happen. Um, I don't think there'll be a huge move to promote him to another team because the VR46 team is an incredibly well-funded and well-backed and well-supported team, and there's no real desire to put him out of it. Um, why not just give him full factory support and let him stay where he is with his mates, with the guys he's worked with for decades, you know, and, and build something there? Because Ducati have shown us that they're not adverse to, um, to throw in factory bikes to anyone that deserves one. Um, and I, I, yeah, why not? Um, on an aside, I don't know if you saw the, the shot of uh, the bike car park here at Hareth this weekend with like 10,000 motorbikes. Oh, it was amazing. Someone, someone, someone tweeted it with a caption saying uh, 2024 factory or satellite Ducati lineup. They sent out a list of stats last night after the race. Um, the, the factory press office, press, press officer Artur. Um, said at this list of amazing things that Ducati have done this year. Um, as, you know, the only manufacturer of one race with two different riders, the only bike to have started from the front row in every race, uh, three wins out of six, and the only manufacturer to been a, have been in every podium. That sounds very impressive until you realize that they've got eight bikes and a third of the grid. So, yeah, you would kind <laughs> yeah. of expect them to be there every week, you know? Now, you know, it's still very impressive because they, they've picked good riders for him. So, you know, congratulations on that. Uh, the, you know, if we were suddenly to slash the county to four bikes, MotoGP would be worse off unless we gave those other bikes to, to other manufacturers. But you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, don't get me wrong. I'd rather see six Ducatis and four Aprilias in the grid next year. Yes, absolutely. But, absolutely. And uh, the same for Suzuki. I think, I think a VR46 swap, actually, the way... So if they decide that current Moto2 points leader Celestino Vietti is not ready, which I the way it's going, I know he has a Moto2 lead. I still think he probably could use another Moto2 year next year, the way I see it right now. So if they decide he's not ready, then I think my early verdict is that a swap in equipment between Bezecchi and Marini within that, within that garage would be good for both parties because clearly Marini still has a lot to figure out. He does not need another equipment upgrade. He needs to get his head around what it is that he's doing right and wrong. Why is it that he can be a front row starter but can't last in the race? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Very odd crash that befell Frenchman Joanne Zarco at the Cito Ponds corner, the long, blind right-hander that goes up towards the crest of the hill. What did he say about that? So he he said he went into the corner, he took the front, and I think the reason that it looked strange is because he realized it was going. He realized that it was going to be quite slow. And he realized the best thing to do was to jettison off the bike quite early and let the bike and him carry on into the gravel trap. Otherwise, it would have ended up as like a Mark Marquez-esque middle of the circuit stuck there crash, which would have obviously been very dangerous running at the front of a race. So I think it it wasn't quite the odd crash that it seemed once he explained that. Um, Once you know that he he kind of made the conscious effort to to jump off it. Um, It probably... Probably adds even more uh, to what Mark Marquez did, though, because, uh, you know, Mark Marquez is capable of saving those moments mm. rather than having to make mm. the decision to jump off them. And yet Zarco was able to push through it and uh, or Zarco was forced to, to push off it. Mm. Mm. Uh, coming back to Repsol Honda, his teammate, Paul Espargaro, Marquez's teammate, Paul Espargaro. I mean, he got 11th position come the flag. Was he even in the race? Incredibly anonymous. Yeah. Um, to be perfectly honest, an incredibly disappointing day for all the Hondas apart from Mark Marquez. Um, Paul had a very anonymous weekend, struggled with his old rear grip problem, um, which is just the last thing that he should be on a bike that was built for him to solve that issue. Uh, Alex Marquez had another also quite anonymous race. He made up good positions. I'll give him that. He came through the field well. Um, I think he came 21st to 13th off the top of my head. It's, it's easy to make up positions when you qualify 68. Yeah, 20. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Sorry, and, and to me, it proves it proves that last weekend was Alex Marquez being made to look good by the circuit. And then the other LCR Honda rider, Takan Akagami, who was 7th, he had his Alex Marquez at Puerto Mel weekend. This is his best week, his best circuit of the year by a long way. We know that. It always has been. But if seventh is the best he can do in the best weekend of his career, of his season, then... <laughs> you got a long summer to go. Not even that. It, like, what a day to have a mediocre result at your best circuit whenever the guy that's tipped to replace you yeah. next year, Ayagura, won his first ever Moto2 race. Yeah. Um, I was going to say seventh is not the problem. First in Moto2 is yeah, the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's... Uh, yeah, it's funny. We, we had a... After Argentina... Um, whenever Nakagami uh, bumped into bumped into Mir off the line, Mir and I were talking after his debrief, and he was saying like, "You know, I don't really know what Nakagami was doing today. He was riding like a wild man. He was never going to finish the race with those tires the way he was attacking." And I sort of jokingly said to him, "Did you see the Moto Two result where Gura just finished on the podium uh, with his teammate Sankrit Chandra behind him for a Honda Team Asia one or two three? And uh, Mir was like, "Ah, yeah, that explains a lot." Um, yeah. and, and the reality is now it's looking increasingly likely that we're going to see two new riders at LCR next year. Um, I think that there are, there are, so I got it confirmed over the weekend, there are definitely some form of talks going on between Jack Miller's manager, Aki Ayo, and, and Lucio Cecanello about Miller potentially returning to there. Um, if, as expected, he's bumped out of the factory Ducati team, um, Cecanello doesn't really have much of a say in what happens on the other side of the garage because of the Edimitsu sponsorship, but Honda 
have given given Nakagami all the chances in the world now after five seasons. Exactly. Anakur is the bit, exactly. next big rising thing. So well, they've given Nakagami a good MotoGP career, which you know ultimately, if he, wa- he I don't think he'll be walking away a failure if he walks away from MotoGP. But it's it's just time. It's time for Agura. I think simple as that. And and. By the sounds of things, Honda will continue to look after Nakagami. There's talk of the world superbike seat. Um, he'll go to Suzuka and win it two or three times, which will bump his standing in Japan massively. So, yeah, he's at a good innings. Never feel sorry for them. One of my little expressions. Um, uh, Alex Rins, he wobbled to 19th this week after fourth the race before. Suzuki continued to lead the team's championship. That's a bit of a shame because... I think you said in your rider ratings, Simon, that it was a bit of a return to the old Alex. But Val, what have you got to say about Alex Rins? Oh, I mean, it's a return to the old Alex and that the Alex of 2021 and that the bike wasn't any good. <laughs> so there's that. I mean, it was it was hot and the bike doesn't seem to work in the heat, which in our modern global warming world is it's not great <laughs> because we're going to have a lot of hot races coming up this season. I don't look. I've been I've been banging the I'm not sold on Suzuki drum for a while now, and I know it's getting old. But this this weekend felt like a, a vindication in that regard. There is there is just no weekends where Suzuki is the bike to beat, and you you know they got demolished by by Quartararo at Portimao and at Harris. Neither Mir nor Rins were were ever at the races. You know, Mir did salvage okay points, but he. He should have been at least in the fight for third if he's to retain serious title title chances. And Rins, yeah, he fell, but he was only going to finish 11th or 12th at the max. Like, they're they're in a bit of trouble again. And look, they, I think there's equal chances at least of maybe Suzuki's a title contender, but maybe Suzuki doesn't win a race this season. I think those are... I think those are equal, if I'm being entirely honest. Mm. I think they will win a race, but who am I to know? Who am I to know? Uh, Jorge Martin, uh, did he crash out of 2023 already? Never mind yesterday. I I think that Martin, he's clearly writing above his limit at the minute, um, but I think that Ducati have a long-term plan for him that probably won't change because he's in a bit of a run of bad form. Um as Val said earlier, and as I've said many times in the podcast, it's easier to make a, a fast rider stop crashing than it is to make a slow rider go fast. And he has so much speed. Um, we know that. Obviously, Ducati have access to all of his data, so they know that even more than us. Um, and while a lot of the focus has been on Enea Bastianini this year, I think that there's still something more complete about Mar- about Martin than there is about uh, Bastianini. Um, either, traditionally, whenever you look back at the real, real talents, the sort of the the first red flag that these guys are going to be something special is their qualifying pace in every class, even before they start winning races. And for me, that is still there for Martin. Um, and I think once once they sort the issues, which I'm sure they are working quite hard to do, then um, I think his future should be secure. It is. It is important to note that Martin is still a less experienced MotoGP rider than even Bastianini, owing to his spell on the sidelines last year after the, the nasty Portimao crash. That said, please stop crashing. Please, please stop. I mean, 
Well, so is it? It's four and six, right? One of those was not his fault. One of those was Banyai knocking him off. But it's yeah, you know, it's 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 not how it should be. He's and we we didn't hear from him yesterday, so mm. probably not in the in the greatest of moods right now. As 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 you you should be really uh, needs to. Ultimately, a factory Ducati ride has to be earned on the basis of this season so far. Bastianini has done more to earn it than, than Jorge Martin. That's, you know, that's not how Ducati is going to look at it. But it's, you know, Martin's going to have that somewhere at the back of his head for the next few races. One thing that, that has been quite notable is that he doesn't like doing media debriefs when he's had a bad day. Um, which is a bit of a surprise because he's always been quite a good media player. Um, and I, I just wonder if that's maybe a sign of something that's changing within the mood or within the, you know, the temperament um, that needs to be addressed as well as the on-track thing. My experience of watching somebody who's mega quick and then starts to get it all wrong is, as you both, we all agree, you know, once you're quick, you're quick. You've just got to slow yourself down just to stop crashing. He might have the wrong people around him. You know, you look at Colin McRae, you look at Mark Marquez, you look at Max Verstappen across three different walks of motorsport. They are always, they were always quick from day one. You just got to have the right person around you to 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 morph you, to guide you, and maybe he's just not got that at the moment. Maybe they can't see the wood for the trees. Um, he wakes up in the morning, he hasn't forgotten how to ride a bike. Um, so um, yeah. Let, let's 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 give him time. Let's give him time. It's also worth noting that Factory Ducati took a, a punt on Jack Miller with a somewhat spotty consistency record of his own. And while it's not quite worked out the way that maybe they'd hoped it to, he, he has won a couple of races for them. And a few more. And and they do have to take a punt, and not everybody comes up trumps. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Brad Binder, top KTM, but as we've touched on already regarding Miguel Oliveira-Val, it just was what did you say before the broadcast a weekend of pain yeah ktm's back to to being 2021 ktm yes that's, that's basically it there's really really not much to be said there there are still tracks where this bike does not work there are still conditions where where this bike does not work um it's it shouldn't be it, it's not a huge shock because you know, the the more likely thing was that they weren't going to fully make a, a massive U-turn from from 2021 to 2022. There was always going to be there was always going to be some tracks where they're not so great. And I think I just I got suckered in by Brad Binder's second place finish in Qatar at a track where the KTM usually didn't work. But since then, Kota now Jerez have have proven that there's still quite a way to go. Dry races to qualify Val's comments. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. Remember, remember, he did do quite well in Indonesia, but that no, no, was yeah, a yeah but that that was like the Qatar was arguably it had the potential to be more informative, mm. and maybe mm. it still is. But yeah, that actually leads in quite well to what I was going to say because it seems like the issue, all of the issues, are still to do with the chassis, uh, chassis and swinging arm. Um, which is why the things are a bit easier in the the wet because the problem's not with the engine or the electronics. It's you know yesterday both riders were complaining about rear chatter that had suddenly appeared out of nowhere in the race, and you think like that's that's not normal for you know 
Chatter is something that, that happens these days in certain conditions. You know to expect it. It's a bit of an Aprilia thing. There's certain conditions where they know they're going to get rear chatter. But for it to suddenly spring up out of nowhere is a bit unusual these days. Um, and it, to me, it just it all goes back to sh- frame design. And we've seen in the past KTM like to try and engineer their way out of problems and it fails. Um because they can, because they've got this tubular steel chassis that's 3D printed and very adjustable and easy to change. And sometimes that's not the way to fix things. They will do what they can. They will do what they can. And it's all about testing. And they're testing at Jerez the day after on the Monday. So Savadori, Lorenzo Savadori, he had a wild card race at uh, at Jerez on the board, the Aprilia. So did Stefan Bradl. Any little nuggets about what the pair of them were testing, or was it the usual clothes shop? Uh, Honda wouldn't even tell us what they had for breakfast, let alone what they're testing. Very um, true. We'll they wouldn't tell you what day it is, in fact. Yeah, exactly. We'll try and leverage something out of Aprilia a little bit later. Well, we know that Bradle was testing the gravel, so <laughs> stop <it>. that. <laughs> Sorry, Stefan. Yeah, coming coming as a test rider whose job is to gather data and finish the race and then crashing twice is not ideal. Yeah, yeah but you know. Mark loves Stefan. Stefan's not going anywhere. <laughs> Ever. Well, bless him, Stefan. And I got a lot of time for him. You know, he'd finished his career yeah. and, and he keeps riding and he keeps riding and he keeps riding and he keeps riding and uh, he'll be sending the invoices in. Job done. So, uh, so yeah, all good. Uh, not, a, not a full house at Hareth, I noticed, on the telly. Quite a few spare seats. Um, you Did you say there was, what, 50, 51,000 people there? Quite. Yeah. So, Hareth crowd figures have been a bit unusual over the past few years. It was consistently a hundred thousand people attendees attending every race. Hundred thousand on Sunday, hundred thousand on Sunday, and then overnight it dropped to like forty-eight thousand a few years ago, and it's kind of stayed there since. Um, everyone I spoke to who was in the grandstand yesterday says no way there was far more than fifty-eight thousand people here. Um, and whenever you look at the shots of the bike park, you think, yeah, there like there's tens of thousands of motorbikes there so whether or not there's a little bit of um creative accounting or something like that going on with actual numbers for whatever reason i don't know but there's yeah there's something that never feels quite accurate about the hareth crowd figure i think what's happened is that a lot of race organizers they over egg the numbers to make it look good but then of course they'll get clobbered with the books so there's never a hundred thousand people there um I've been at Silverstone and there's 120,000 people there. You can't fall over. Um, and it's a huge place, Silverstone. I mean, Hareth, I could bet you you could put in the flipping South Circuit at Silverstone. Um, so, uh, and then what they've had to do is go the other way with the books and go to 50. <laughs> so the, the, there was a good crowd. It felt like a good crowd. It felt like old Hareth with a lot of atmosphere, yeah. but... Let's not read too much into actual numbers. Nah, it, it looked this pretty... Is, this pretty, is Andalusia. The numbers are nothing. <laughs> yeah, it looked good. It looked good. Uh, Valentino Rossi, he raced at Brands Hatch yesterday for the very first time in his career aboard his Audi R8 GT3 car that he's racing. He had an 8th and a 14th position just to bring you up to date, but I'm sure his phone was red hot with WhatsApp messages back and forth to Hareth. Uh, FIM, they uh, um, 
confirmed some technical regulation changes for 2024 when it will be mandatory in all GP classes to use a fuel with a minimum of 40% of non-fossil fuel origin, so sustainable fuels. Sustainable fuels come from uh, agricultural waste and such like, and there can be a blend between the two of them. All sorts of different teams in different forms of motorsport are using a blend, some up to 80% of sustainable fuel with a 20% fossil fuel additive. But that percentage will be increased to 100% sustainable fuel used in Grand Prix motorcycle racing in 2027 onwards. Uh, other things that are happening with regards to sustainable fuel, Le Mans 24 hours, they're going to be 100% sustainable fuel this year. Uh, Dakar will be 50% sustainable fuel next year. So it's on the horizon. Yeah, and the reason that Le Mans is leading the way in particular is uh, because the technology that we're using and they're using is uh, being largely driven by Porsche. Uh, Porsche have built a huge new plant in South America and Chile that uses wind power to convert seawater into hydrocarbons, basically. So there's zero carbon emission from the actual process and it's it's fully renewable. Um, that's what we're using. That's what a few of the teams here have already been playing with. Uh, you remember both Suzuki and KTM experimented with a new fuel from a company called ETS a few years ago that you could actually smell running in the bikes. It smells sweeter out of the exhaust of the bike. Um, so it's it's not an unusual, an unknown technology for this paddock. Um, and, and when I've spoken to engineers in the past, they're quite excited about it because it's something else that you can tune. Exactly. The Porsche plant in, uh, in Chile is a multi-billion euro operation multi-billion and they are very much set on it Porsche more and more sustainable fuel uh, manufacturers for want of a better expression are coming through so you know if you're wondering what agricultural waste is you know they they cut the corn off the cob the rest of the plant is is then mushed up and made as it is in South America for a lot of methanol. So um, instead of it being ploughed back and then the the, the the carbon being released into the atmosphere, it's been harnessed to go racing. So it's it's not using fossil fuel in a different way. So, yeah. Also worth noting that uh, another place that has been driving synthetic fuel technology along quite nicely is Qatar, which obviously is a country that has a, a very close relationship with the MotoGP Championship. Um, all of the uh, Dorna and uh, Erta and FAM guys have been dealing with BP, with ETS that Simon has mentioned, Repsol, Shell, Total Energies, which is uh, Total, should I say, and Patronus, who are all pushing that forward. Uh, also announced Best Grand Prix of 2021. Uh, you know the answer to this, Simon, but what was your Best Grand Prix of 2021, personally? Um, I think my Best Grand Prix of 21 was probably, in terms of, of sort of what the criteria for this vote is um probably Mizano because Valentino's farewell was quite well managed and it was where we won the championship with the big race I think uh Valencia got a little bit lucky in winning the award by dint of being the only race that was allowed full attendance last year so a bit of a, an easy victory for them thanks to reduced COVID restrictions yeah more of the famous anti-Valencia agenda from Simon. Oh dear, stop it, stop it. So, uh, so yeah, so uh, always uh, a good vibe in Hareth. Any other news and scuttlebutt from around the paddock? Usual complaints this weekend about race control and the FAM stewards being massively inconsistent. Um, Ayumi Sasaki gets sent to the back of the grid in, in Moto3 for touring in the racing line, where basically when we looked at the video... 
Um, he hadn't been touring on the racing line. He ran off the track because he outbraked himself and then joined into the back of three others who were touring in the racing line. And they penalized off, or they penalized three of them, including him, but not the guy at the front of the touring group is Angavar, who qualified on pole position and started from pole position while the others were sent to the back of the grid. Um, big crash in Moto3 warm-up involving uh, Joel Kelso. Perazzi got wiped out by a ghost bike after uh, Ortola fell off it. Terrifying. Um, after, con- after contact with Ricky Rossi, who was then given a long lap penalty for sitting up in the straight, um, who then tweeted me to tell me that race control had agreed with him that he didn't deserve a penalty. Um and had reduced it from two laps to one lap because they couldn't rescind it because they'd already announced he was being penalized. So I have no idea. I The FIM, the FIM uh, steward's room is the de- department of mysteries of MotoGP. It is just what goes on in there ain't connected to what goes on on the track anymore. Pandora's box. Things go in, thing goes out. Yeah. yeah. Well, what to say, what to say. We've had Qatar, Indonesia, Argentina, Texas, Portugal, and now Jerez. Six down, 15 MotoGP races to go. Next up will be the French Grand Prix at Le Mans. The reigning MotoGP champion, the championship leader, Fabio Quattararo, will be going to the Circuit de la Sarthe, the small version, the Bugatti Circuit, as that championship leader. What a weekend he's going to have next time out. He puts his leg over that Yamaha M1. Keep in touch with all of our news through the-race.com. In the meantime, from Val, Simon and myself, Toby, enjoy your week. Tune back in again very soon. Bye for now. The Athletic.